All right. Hello. Uh, so obviously this episode looks different than normal. We have a third person here today. So Tim, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. My name is Tim Whitaker. I'm the creator and facilitator for the New Evangelicals. We're mostly a digital community and content um, platform uh, that focuses on the people who, who have been marginalized by the evangelical church. So we just really hold space for them and help them um, find new people to connect with, new ways of thinking about being Christian uh, that's still faithful to Jesus. Um, and we've been going since December of 2020. So that's what I do. And I also play music on the weekends professionally. That's awesome. Um, so that's it. So you started in 2020. Like what was the, was there like a catalyst type moment to kick it off? Or like, what was the, hey, this is the day I think we're going to do this. Like, what was that? kind of turning point to say I'm diving into this. Yeah, I mean, there definitely was a moment that gave me the idea for the name. And that was all thanks to my buddy, Sean Foyt. He's the worship leader who made a lot of money in 2020 protesting mask mandates and just having these massive gatherings in the yeah. middle slash beginning of a pandemic where we knew so little. And I remember when everything was shut down, sitting on my front porch, just sitting there watching these videos. And I was just like so frustrated with, with how, how much success he was finding in evangelical spaces. I thought to myself, man, we need like, we need better, a better evangelical something. We need a new evangelical movement. We just need like new evangelicals. And I was like, you know, I have a lot of ideas in my mind and usually they're all pretty crappy. This one though, it's <laughs> not a bad name. So I looked online to see if anyone else had it on, on social media domain and no one had it. So I just grabbed it just in case, but it yeah. wasn't until December where I actually launched the Instagram at the time um, and, and actually called it the new evangelicals. That was new for us. So it took, a, it took a few months. I had to really weigh it out. I was really torn if I should or shouldn't do it, but that was the catalyst. But, you know, obviously so much has happened even since then, but there were things leading up to that around my own faith journey as well that, that got me there. But that was the, the final little push over the domino. And, and here we are now. Yeah. I actually want to ask something about the name for a second. It's because mm. I feel like it's in the deconstruction space. Evangelical kind of has a negative connotation. So mm -hmm. like, why, why reclaim that word or why keep that word? Well, at the time when I created the name, my thought, I was still involved in evangelical spaces. I was, I was a, a mm. full-time volunteer, so to speak, drumming in a place that I loved. I was all in, you know, at, at a church. And my thought was, you know, we can we can be better evangelicals like we can we can push the name forward and just kind of progress from where it is now with this mass stuff. A lot of my theology was still pretty evangelical, definitely more questions and kind of more open to explore. But I wasn't fully affirming at the time. I, I was more of an inclusive position where it was despite my theological conviction. You know, the queer community should not be barred from worshiping. That was kind of my position at the time, kind of like in between. So that was the idea. But, you know, obviously a lot has changed since then. And one of the things now I say is there's actually a really good book by Donald Dayton called Discovering an Evangelical Heritage. And he kind of traces how the early evangelical movement through the Wesleyan tradition was, was quite cutting edge for its time. They were strong mm -hmm. abolitionists. They were egalitarian. Um, you know, there's a story in the book where he says that that a couple got married and the wife's like, I'm not taking your name. I'm not your property. We're going to be co-equal in this marriage. So so certainly there is a tradition, I think, to 
dig way back to, to try and reclaim some of that and then, and then put that in our own context and, and move forward. Um, but I understand for sure how the term these days has been really, um, it's become synonymous with things like, um, you know, uh, bigotry and homophobia and just mm-hmm. conservative politics. So I certainly get the trepidation, but I do think that, that, that the term is flexible. It's been used in one way before it's been taken to a different direction. And now we're trying to take it into a different direction. So that's kind of how I see it. That's cool. So I, I'm, I remember when I first like jumped into pastoral ministry, like I was, um, I actually really didn't know a lot of what I believed. I was still like learning things and growing and yeah. jumping into it. I remember like a year or so. And I was like, I learned more about my faith as kind of like leading this like ministry than I did kind of being on the outside. And so, and I know it's not the case for everyone, but I wonder for you, like you're leading this kind of charge in a new frontier of ministry, so to speak. But it sounds like you didn't go into it with your theology radically different, but it's shifted over time. And so like, how have you, like, how is this platform and the content you're putting out and the conversation you're opening? Like, how has that shifted the stuff you have believed and known to be true and all that? Like, has it been pretty fluid through the process? Yeah. I mean, I'm naturally a very adaptable person. And I, I've always, even, even when I was younger, 18, 15, I was always curious about just like, you know, I, when I was 19, I was reading Shane Claiborne's Irresistible Revolution and also reading Rob Bell and also reading Paul Washer. You know, like, yeah. so these are all like very not in the same vein of like, you know, theology. But I was just kind of curious, you know, and sure. and so so when I launched the New Evangelicals, that's when I discovered the term deconstruction. I didn't know it existed until then. Mm-hmm. And I realized that there were looking back now, I gained a lot of language for things that I I was starting to sniff like. I don't know, you know, the, the Ahmaud Arbery situation, the, his, his lynching, for example, right? That was a moment where I went, okay, I don't have language for what I, I have a premonition about, but something is not right here. I don't, I don't know what it is. I don't know what I'm swimming in yet. I don't, the word colonization, white supremacy, foreign to me. But you have like, I have like an inclination of like, I don't know, something is, is really wrong. So I think through launching the account and then just discovering other voices who have already been in these spaces and in other spaces that as an evangelical, I was never privileged to like black liberation theology, for example, as you start exploring those spaces, yeah. you just start gaining more language and a, a clearer picture of, of kind of what's going on. So yeah, a lot of my theology around the Bible, around, um, you know, more specific things like hell around, um, you know, American culture around the history of evangelicalism has all shifted, yeah. but theologically I've been on that journey for quite a while. Yeah. Is, have you, so like, I know like on our, our church's uh, TikTok account, we, I get a lot of negative comments, right? We get a lot of people that push back um, even from some of my in-person friends, clergy and non sometimes will push back to the things we're doing both on the deconstruction zone or at our church. But how has it been for you since launching this in line of relation to the communities you were already a part of? Like, are you still active in the churches or communities and circles you're in? Or have you kind of been like moved or pushed out of those? Or have you self-selected out of those? What's that all been like? Yeah, I was pushed out of my church community when I started this. It was uh, five months into it. And the lead pastor sat me down and said, listen, you can either pretty much, he said, well, you can you can stop doing the work you're doing online or you can stop serving as a drummer on the worship team that you've been a part of for six years. So that completely blew up everything. And those relationships dissolved 
within a few months, 90% of them, I still keep in touch with a few who we really are seriously good friends and like a deep love for each other. But the majority of those relationships, and there's so much more to that story. Um, but yeah, it completely blew everything up. You know, I mean, and when I started New Evangelicals, the, the idea was, look, I'm going to a church that maybe isn't like those other evangelical churches. They're handling COVID really well. My worship pastor protects volunteers. Um, you know, yeah. we, 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 we differ on certain things that we're still centered on Christ. And of course, that, uh, you know, proved to be uh, really an illusion uh, by April of 2021. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I know, Emily, that's kind of your story, too. I mean, it sounds like I say, like shaking your head, like you had a little bit of like as you went through the deconstruction journey, not a lot of like love in that process. Right. Yeah. And especially like. I think. Um, what was I gonna say? Oh, just like. Being public about it and that being the issue. Like, I think it's interesting, like, kind of like what you're saying, Tim, that when they were like, you can stop this presence online. Like, they didn't really ask you to not think that. Right. Or maybe they did. They asked no. you to not talk about it. That's a very important thread that isn't pulled on often in this part of this, in this conversation, because mm-hmm. there were people that would tell me privately that like, hey, like, I've been thinking about like this whole gay inclusion thing. And like, I think like we should be more open. But they didn't have a platform where they were maybe asking that question. Again, at the time, I wasn't I wasn't even fully there yet. I mean, I am now, but I wasn't then. But just the fact that we were talking about it, asking the questions, and that, you know, well, kids from the youth group are asking questions now. The young adults are asking questions. Um, kind of thing. It's like, great. You know, in my mind, it's like, hey, there's, there's unity and diversity. Let's talk mm-hmm. about this. And by the way, to be clear, I when I started this platform, the, the entire time I was at that church, I was never talking about this work at the church. I was never bashing the pastor. I only got, I got coffee with the pastor every month intentionally, right? I, I was close to the worship pastor intentionally. So they knew that I was committed, even if we had some theological sure. differences. So I agree. The, the key isn't that, you know, you think this, it's that you're talking about it outside of our church circles. And as a volunteer, we just can't have that. Hmm. Which to me shows that, to me, I read that as, there isn't actually a lot of confidence in their own theology. Like you have to silence other voices because otherwise people can see the holes in what you're thinking. Is that how you read that? Or like, what's the fear you think beneath why they asked you? Yeah, I think there were a couple of layers. I think one was that what you just said, where it's, you know, people will always will often say to me like, Hey, you know, you come to the right conclusion does that make sense mm-hmm. okay so um so it's like yeah ask ask all you want about hell as long as you land at eternal conscious torment sure ask mm-hmm. all you want about, about sexuality as long as you affirm mm-hmm. that being queer is sinful you know sure ask all the questions sure. you about the bible as long as you affirm our theology on it so it's not so much the questions it's the answer so i i did find that like what you said where it's like mm, okay and the other thing i i found was that it was a great wake up call that at least the churches I've been a part of, including that most recent church, they, they, they value right belief over, over relationship. So, Mm. so you're only as good to them as long as you're volunteering, you're tithing and you believe the right things. And once you become a problem theologically, that all is, that is usurped by, you know, uh, over everything else. Doesn't matter how many coffees you get. Doesn't matter how many times you break bread. Doesn't matter how many times you've been there for people. Doesn't matter how much money you give. Doesn't matter how many hours you volunteered. That's out the window because you're asking 
questions that the evangelical institution deems as against the Christian boundary, which, of course, is an illusion. It's really the evangelical boundary. But I found that to also be the case as well. Yeah, yeah I, I think that's so good. And I think like what you were saying, though, about how they kind of say, like, you can ask these questions if you arrive where we did. Right. I, that was my experience when I started being vocal is people are like, yeah, it's totally cool. But deconstruct wisely. And right. I'm like, that just means you want me to agree with you. Like, <laughs> right. And um, I think I think it's a real wake up call, too, for a lot of us where when you're outside of that circle, you're like, wait a second. I was taught this is Christianity and this is really white centered evangelicalism. And that's very different. Not saying it's not Christianity, but it's inside. I call it the basement. Of, of the Christian house, you know, like it's a part of it, but my gosh, there's so many other rooms attached to the Christian tradition that are not part of that basement that are beautiful. But once you walk up those stairs, that's it. Like you're, you're too far gone by those standards. I, I go ahead. Emily. And I also think like what you're saying is that a lot of churches are saying, well, people are deconstructing and leaving the church, but it's like, in reality, people are starting this process often in the church and the church is not actually making them feel welcome. It's saying, okay, but hurry it up and get back to what we think. Um, That's right. So I'm, I'm kind of interested in saying like where you are with church these days. Well, I think it's important to define what, what we mean because church is a very big term, right? That would encompass everything, right? Orthodox, mm-hmm. Eastern Orthodox, et cetera. Sure. So, you know, where I am with white evangelical American culture church, <laughs> I guess you can call it that. So I'm thinking of like the AG, the more non-denominational types, the ones who want to be the next Hillsong, you know, that kind of vibe. Like, I mean, I'm totally over it. I'm, I'm out of it. And I've been, uh, to be transparent, I've been asking the question about church for way, way longer than, I, than I've been deconstructing, quote unquote. Like even when I was 18, 19, there's a book by Frank Viola called Pagan Christianity, where he kind of unpacks how a lot of our modern day church practices are really from pagan culture. I was reading that at 19, like, oh my gosh, the church is so far gone, you know, but it was from the other side of like, more of like a, what's the true gospel? What's, what is the objectively accurate answer to this stuff? So I, I've, I've had my reservations for a while with, with, with mega church culture and what I call uh, event-based co- uh, church culture where it's centered around event, not community, right? So I've had those beefs, but after this, it was just the final straw of like, yeah, you know, on top of that, the theology I think is just so ultimately, widely speaking, not every church on every pastor, but widely speaking, you know, it does a lot of harm and really raises people to be Christians who are really conservatively, conservative politically and keeps them pretty much on milk. Uh, I would mm. say in some pretty weak theological, like, um, there's no space for real wrestling. You, you know, it's like, hey, yeah, you have a question about how God was genocidal in the Old Testament? No problem. Here's the apologist's answer. Just accept it. Like, there's there's no, like, taking that question seriously and realizing that's a big question that we have to really, like, wrestle through. and might not even have a good answer for. What do we do with that? Right? So I, I just found, I find that whole system to be just very much a house of cards, frankly. Mm. Yeah. You mentioned a little bit being like pretty flexible and like you're reading this person, but you're also reading that person. And um, this idea that you're like able to wrestle, like, are how are you with like, are you fine to come out the other end of something with no answer? Because I know that's actually what I have found for us in the deconstruction journey is like we're engaging with people that have been told for a long time. Emily has said this a lot that like she growing up until years ago, just a few years ago, you have not maybe the right answer, but an a answer for every question you were taught the apologetics. Right. Mm-hmm. And so for you, like Tim, as you're wrestling with these things, when you come out the other side without maybe an answer, 
what is like, does that give you anxiety? Or are you like, that's part of the mystery and beauty of the faith? Like, wh- where do you find yourself in that? So in the beginning part of this, again, we'll, we'll call it deconstruction, uh, rethinking our, my faith, whatever you want to call it, disentangling our, my faith. Yeah, certainly anxiety inducing, right? I mean, let, let's face it, a lot of us, I mean, I'm 33, I was brought up in evangelical fundamentalism. So you're just given absolutes. Do you want to know for sure where you're going to go when you die? Pray this prayer so you don't burn in hell forever, right? What happens when you're driving late one night and you're 25 and you go, what if I'm wrong? And what if I'm going to hell because I'm in the wrong faith? Yeah. How do I know? And you have this like this like this dark night of the soul moment where you like you feel like you're in hell all of a sudden because you're just you have so much anxiety coming over you. So so certainly, you know, um, I have gone through major uh, anxiety and depression and just panic things. That I'm not sure if they were spurred on by theological realities like this, but something deep in my psyche happened a couple of years ago that just really put me, put, threw me for a loop. But as I've kept on going and kind of um, said, listen, I have to, I just have to be as honest to myself as possible and just explore as much as possible, right? And just listen to people. Because one thing to keep in mind, I think as Americans, we have a hard time with, let alone evangelicals, is that we're so ahistorical. We think that like all of our questions are new questions, right? Like, mm-hmm. oh my God, has anyone ever thought about what if we're wrong? Or what if hell is not, what if hell is eternal and we're really going there? The good news is that there are beautiful Christian thinkers in our history who have, who have thought about these things. You know, it can give us insight, right? That aren't the, the Sean McDowell, Elisa Childers apologetics answer, right? So to answer your question now, I am like, man, it's so freeing, <laughs> frankly. I'm like, wow, I, I, the, the shift is going from I'm exploring these new rooms in the Christian tradition, tradition to see if they're objectively accurate and right versus I just want to explore them to understand them. And just say, huh, there might be some wisdom here. What do I do with that in my cultural moment? That's the shift. And I I think this objective truth lens that apologists have really fed us that we have to apply to religion, which, by the way, if I may, just for a second, what a fool's errand, really, when you think about it. I mean, you know, the example I use a lot is like in academic circles in college, there's no one debating a a flat earth. Like there's no flat earth department trying to say we have good evidence, because we, we can objectively verify, no, the earth is yeah. round. Here's the data. That's not how religion works, okay? <laughs> That's just not how the Christian tradition yeah. works. We're, how can you objectively prove that we believe that a guy rose again from the dead and is, and is God incarnate? That's not an objectively truthful claim that's able to be verified. It just isn't. So can we just be honest about that, right? So I feel like once we start losing that lens of trying to sit in these, am I absolutely standing on objective you know, rock truth, whatever you want to say it? Once you lose that and saying, maybe I have the wrong categories, maybe I'm asking the wrong questions, maybe these biblical authors weren't even concerned about that in, in, in that sense, man, it, it, it be, the weight is lifted in a lot of ways. And now you can explore and just take in and see that there's so much beauty and mystery. And that's just how the world functions. It, it, is, what, it is what it is. I know that that's a long answer, but that's no. kind of how I got there. That's a great answer. I think, uh, yeah, it's just, I think the lens is really important, right? Like one thing I said to someone recently was like the... It, like my favorite example is often using like the conversation around inerrancy of scripture. Totally. The like first century Christians, that was not even on anyone's radar or the second century or like as it can, like this idea of inerrancy is something that we have really clung to in modern day Christianity. Right. But the like, like, do we need to take every single word to mean this for my faith to be true? wasn't even on the radar, which tells us like, to your point, like we're creating a lot of rubrics for how we engage our faith that, wouldn't even been on the radar 
of Jesus. And we like, we just had a rabbi come preach to our church. He was talking about how the like, most faithful thing the Jewish tradition does is wrestle with their text. Right. And they right. And and somehow is it. <laughs> yeah. And it's evangelicals. Uh, Cause I would put myself in that bucket probably, even though it's a loaded word for me. Like sure. I would say like, we have been like wrestle no more. There could be no mm-hmm. like pulling right. these questions out, asking right. big questions, reconsidering things, but it's kind of like the most foundational thing to how Jesus probably would have understood his faith. Right. And also it's life. Like life is progression. The person I am now is not who I was five years ago, 10 years ago. Right. Why do we do that to our faith? Here it is. We've arrived. Here's the doctrines to believe it's. And like you said, it's just, it's not accurate to the Christian tradition. It's not. And it raises too many questions that are unanswerable, but people like to pretend that, that they're answered. I mean, my, one of my yeah. favorite things is the gospel. We'll just believe the gospel. Well, what is the gospel? Because if you ask the Catholic tradition or the Eastern Orthodox tradition or the Reformed tradition or the Calvinist tradition or the AG, you're going to get a slightly different tweak on some pretty big, big issues here. So yeah. even things like that that we've accepted as just, yeah, we all understand what this is. It's just not that simple. So, yeah, I agree with you 100%. Yeah. I, uh, this is nothing serious, but I knew we were the same age when you said that you read, uh, Shane Claiborne, your <laughs> revolution in college. Cause like, that's what I read my freshman year of college. <laughs> I was in Germany for a month and I read it there and it was just like, Oh my gosh, I never thought about this stuff before. Socially minded Christians. You know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's funny. for sure. Um, so what it like for your audience, uh, cause I like, I know what we're in this podcast relatively new. So we're kind of seeing what our audience is. But we have a lot more like people that are just like really kind of trying to dip back into religious spaces because they felt like there was no room for them in their kind of deconstructing, deconstructing or untangling or whatever. But for the new evangelicals, like what is your audience? Like, do you get a lot of pastors? Do you get a lot of like just kind of lay Christians? Like, do you get a lot of people that are post Christian? Like, where are you at and who you guys are engaged? Because I love your content, but I like I'm wondering, like, is it for people like me or who do you interact with the most? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's hard to measure based on like all of our avenues. Like our, I'm not sure about our podcast platform, for example, like our, our demographics. But on Instagram, one of our largest places, 72% of our followers are women. Okay. So 7 out of 10. Um, and I have, a, I have a hypothesis for that, by the way. Um, and most of the people that we engage with in our DMs are usually people who were all in at church at some point in their life, whether it was staff or volunteer. And either could no longer reconcile reading Jesus with the tra- with the trajectory of the evangelical tradition with Trump, and then and then Black Lives Matter, and then COVID, like that kind of order of things, or they were kicked out, you know, or they were really mm. hurt. Like I'm talking like major abuse here, like sexual abuse, like like not oh my pastor was mean one day, like I was abused by my my whoever my my elder you know, for 10 years as a child, kind of like real heavy stuff. Or, hey, I used to go to Mark Driscoll's church. We get quite a few of those, right? So we're talking about like people who have heavy, heavy, harmful experiences. And then we're, we're kicked out or we're silenced or that pastor's still leading today. And, and they were kind of thrown to the side. That's kind of like the big picture overview of most of the people that we engage with uh, in DMs and most people that I think consume our content. I want to hear your women hypothesis. My woman hypothesis is that the church marginalizes women and does not give them a voice. And they found their voice on platforms that will elevate their voice. 
because like the way that we operate on on Instagram usually is we always we usually ask questions for the community. So it'll be like, hey, today, um, have you ever like a big one is purity culture. Whenever we ask about purity culture, anyone here been in purity culture? Boom, like five hundred DMs, and then we share them. We share like a hundred. So we'll screenshot anonymously. We'll just share it on our stories so everyone can see. And that's when we get a lot of, oh, my God, that's my story. Oh, my gosh, that's me. So I think whenever you have a place that will what will take stories and say we'll elevate them and we'll believe you. And I'm not tooting my own horn. I'm saying just our organization. That's not a me thing. That's an organization thing. I think women in particular, because they're so marginalized by evangelical spaces via sexism, implicitly or explicitly, um, or being abused and being covered up. They're like, well, I'm going to find my damn voice. And if this place will elevate it, I'm going to be here kind of thing. So I think that's kind of that's my my working hypothesis. I can't prove objectively, but that's my hunch. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, Emily, you may not know this. Seventy three percent of our podcast listeners are also women. So we have a high uh, oh, really? female uh, listenership. Yeah. <laughs> but that's an issue. Like part of our like journey through deconstruction and having the conversation is like, for you, Emily, and I'll let you share your story because uh, you don't need a straight white guy to explain it for you. But no, I uh, do. <laughs> uh, but like for you, it's like you didn't really you were told for a long time you didn't have a voice in that. And so I think for our audience, part of the reason ours is so high is they're seeing someone who talks like them and looks like them processing this and having their voice be valued, which I think is different. Like it's not seen everywhere. Yeah. And it's honestly like it still blows my mind most days, like even so yeah, I grew up in a very complementarian church environment. Women couldn't preach, be elders, mm. teach men, anything like that. But you're still <laughs> equal. Don't worry. <laughs> okay. <laughs> equal. They're really God, God's design is not exactly equal, Jesus. but it, you know. <laughs> um, but like, as someone who always wanted to preach and teach and be heard, it was really. That was one of the huge things. I remember someone telling me when I was really grappling with a lot, someone said, Emily, I wish that you would stay in the denomination because I think what you're saying is important, but I also don't blame you for leaving because I know that they will never give you space to say any of this. And I just so appreciated the honesty of that. And so even being on this podcast or like just last Sunday, um, I preached at the well and which is something that like I've always dreamed of doing. And have gotten a lot of backlash from people from that denomination who heard that I preached, which has been a whole nother thing. But I think you're right that any opportunity for someone who hasn't had a voice to have their voice is like, will always be taken. I mean, my, I quote my therapist a lot on this podcast, but um, I'm, I'm also a stand up comedian. And she was like, Emily, I think you're a comedian because you found a way to get behind a microphone and be heard. Mm. And I was like, well, crap. (laughs) Um, Yeah. But yeah, I think that's huge that you do that. It's really a shame that, you know, we're in 2022 and we have to have this conversation, you know, Mm -hmm. and it's, it's, it's a real, it's a really impressive web that kind of keeps it all together. Right. Because if you say we should be beyond this and they say, well, you're just neglecting God's word. That's the same today, yesterday and forever. If you appeal to context, they say it's not good enough context and that you're not being biblical. But then if you talk about the poor, they're saying that you, you're a socialist. So it's like, you know, they just, they just have like a, a perfect like answer to everything that, that honestly, who benefits? mostly white men <laughs> like it's amazing just how coincidental it is that that their theology puts them in positions of power and everyone else beneath of them like it just i guess it's just god's design order that way just what what 
what a coincidence, you know, that that most women aren't saying this, <laughs> but mostly white men are using this logic to keep people in their place and keep them elevated because God. Right. So it's very frustrating, but it's it's a very it's a hard web to break if you grew up that way. I grew up that way. I was homeschooled for nine years, grew up in very John MacArthur type fundamentalist spaces. You know, complementarian was big. Uh, women, could women even even lead worship? I don't know. We have to talk about it. I mean, that, that's what we're talking about here, right? So it's just really a shame that we have to have that, that discussion still in 2022. Yeah, it's interesting. Like that's in even wrestling with, because I'm originally from Portland, Oregon, and mm. Oregon is a much more progressive city than st louis missouri than am now but what was so interesting is like the the christian culture we i grew up very much in the mars hill like circle right like that wasn't very far away from where we were and so it had this kind of interesting impact and it was funny like watching the conversations the church was having and the way they were framing theology which was so different from what everyone else in culture was saying and not that like just because the city was progressive. They were right, but they understood social issues and they understood like the way people interacted with each other so much different than I watched the church handle it. And that was like, before I ever had any real thought about deconstructing or that, like, uh, cause when I was in college and you were in college, we just said it was like postmodernism or whatever. Like it was right. kind of like the same <laughs> conversation, but right. like, I remember being like, Hey, this is like, there's something that culture has to say that can inform this, but that's where I th- see the church having its biggest let down is it so fearful to have any real conversations with what's happening around it because of like the whole you said god says so or the bible says so and i think culture doesn't have to inform everything we believe religiously but i think we for too long kind of like parse them out and put them in different buckets and now we're like trying to have this reckoning to see where they kind of inform one another if that makes sense well i also think that that it's an illusion i mean they have a culture like there's a culture here you know, there is an yeah. evangelical conservative culture that, by the way, comes very much from American, you know, Americana, like 1950s, uh, you know, complementarian uh, wife stays home and cooks and man goes out to the corporate job kind of thing. That's mm-hmm. a culture. They don't call it that. I, I think Kristen Dumais book, Jesus and John Wayne, demonstrates this so well. But like we have to stop pretending. I'm not saying you. I'm just saying in general, we have to stop pretending that like, you know, it's the culture versus the Bible. No, no, no. It's sure. the culture against a different culture. And the reality yeah. is everyone has a culture. Like we all have that. We're all swimming in it. And I think what bugs me the most is when I hear folks like the Paul Washers or the John MacArthur's try and pretend that all they're doing is reading the Bible objectively and everyone else is just reading right. their own culture into it. Like it's, it is a misguided, illogical and untruthful claim and people swallow it hook, line and sinker. And it's very problematic because they own the corner on this language. Right. Sure. So 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 they've they've convinced them and their followers that, oh, yeah, no, we're just being biblical where the Bible says the Bible. I mean, never mind, you know, all the passages about about the poor and the oppressed and Jesus saying he's literally in Luke. You know, I've come to give liberation to the poor and the oppressed in Matthew 25, where he says, you don't take care of the people in prison. You're you're guilty of pretty much judgment. Never mind those verses. But um, homosexuality. Oh, sure. Here it is. You know, complementarianism. Here's our two verses. The Bible's clear. It's like, OK, so so what? What what logic is deeper than this that is fueling how you're how you're interpreting the Bible? Because that's what's really happening here. But they don't present it that way. They present it as we're just being biblical. That is malarkey. Absolutely. And like I I remember going to a pastor in in my denomination and being like, I'm really frustrated with how women are treated. And he just said, oh, Emily, people with a high view of scripture aren't bothered by that. There it is. And I was like. 
Oh, when in okay, reality, cool. if I may, I think they have some of the lowest views of scripture, the lowest possible, because what they do is, and I hate to rant, but they take, they take modern concepts, objective truth, you know, all that kind of stuff. And they apply it to a collection of books that is not claiming those things. Even the word truth that right. Jesus uses is more like the word trustworthy than objectively, verifiably true. Massive difference. You know, when Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, I am trustworthy. Follow me is the concept here. And so I, I find that people who have this inerrant view of scripture are not honest about, about, about the Bible that we have. I mean, as Pete Enns would say, whether you want this Bible or not, it's one that we have. And the Bible itself will tell you it is not flawless. It is not historically accurate in all ways. That's just not how it functions. That's not progressivism. That's not me saying I'm trying to twist things. That's just the scholars who spent their life, who love the Bible and love Jesus, saying, listen, we've, we're studying this stuff, and I think we're missing something here. So I would argue that the John MacArthur's of the world actually have quite a low view of scripture, but have been really effective in weaponizing it to maintain their power structures at the expense of their neighbor. Yeah. And I've been wrestling with this and I really want to know your take is like, I a hundred percent agree with everything that you're saying about the Bible, but I know like if I were to bring this argument to some, to people in my old church spaces, they would be like, well, if you throw the inerrancy of the Bible out, then you have nothing to lean on. Like nothing else is fully is fully trustworthy, mm -hmm. and it and sometimes I sometimes that gnaws at me a little bit because I'm like if I let go of the inerrancy of the Bible and am I just like willy nilly whatever Emily thinks because that was the black and white as I said it can only be those two, right? I mean I find this again just to be kind of a half truth. Uh, I'll put it this way: <laughs> if we're gonna get technical, people wrote the Bible. People, there's no magic pen. Okay, there's there's no beam down from heaven to earth in the NIV. God didn't write it, mend it. Now we we believe that they were inspired to write it for sure. Okay, I'm not saying that they didn't, but there's this idea of like the Bible is the standard of objective truth for everything. The Bible itself is not trying to be those things. Okay. I understand that we all have a need for certainty. I get that. And thanks to the modern revolution, you know. At the time, anyway, this this need for certainty is, is a key um, ethos of, of, of how our brains are wired, thanks to the enlightenment and everything else. I understand that. But trying to use the Bible as that foundation, just read the darn thing. Just read it. I mean, in the Old Testament, there are parts where Yahweh commands the mass genocide of women, children, and, you know, and, and, and fathers. And then Jesus in the New Testament says, you've heard it said, but love your enemy. Okay. So even on the surface, we have, we have some competing things here. Now, I'm not saying that the Bible isn't trustworthy or that there isn't wisdom here, but it's a lot more complicated than just read the thing and you'll be fine. That's not how it functions. It just isn't. Yeah. So, you know, if people want to hold the view of inerrancy, fine. But if you want to try and make it seem like you're standing on some objective truth that no one else is because of inerrancy, that's just not, that's a verifiable, not true statement. I mean, manuscripts yeah. wise, translation wise, which one is it, you know? So yeah. I just find it to be a fool's errand, but I also understand how it gives people comfort of, oh, I have certainty in my life. I know something truth, truthful that that is, is a rock, uh, is a foundation. Just my quick answer to what you said, how I would, how I go forward. I realize I think about I think about it almost like the Western quadrilateral, you know, the concept of like, like, like you have four boxes. OK, there's church tradition. There's the Bible. There's experience. 
what's the other one? What's the fourth one I'm missing? Tradition, reason, experience, and scripture. Thank you. And so you obviously have a hierarchy of like, of like how you kind of filter these things. But the point is that you need those four things to move forward, right? And so I find that 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 there are great models out there that that kind of include a little bit of everything. Like, yes, the Bible is important, obviously, but also so is experience. But also so is what the church has said historically. But also so yeah. is using our minds. And when you combine those things, I think what it tells you is that I think it is a little foolish now to try and pretend that the Bible is going to give you absolute certainty. But once you lose that and you realize, you know, this is kind of the human condition. We're kind of exploring together. We're kind of unraveling together. We're trying to figure this out together. We're intention together. We're community. We're a community working through this. You find a different kind of security that you're not alone mm-hmm. in that. And I think that, that, that can be helpful. Yeah. I love that because like for me, what I realized is, when even even if people are saying they're fully relying on the Bible or whatever, they're still I go back to my therapist. My therapist one time, she was like, <laughs> she goes, she said, Emily, when people say the Bible is inerrant, what they're really saying is their interpretation is inerrant. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And so so you're always relying on people and on yourself, kind of. Right. For truth, even if you are claiming. Well, it's like when people say, just read the Bible, but they don't do that. You listen to a theologian, (laughs) R.C. Sproul, John MacArthur, like someone else informs you how to read the Bible. Again, that's fine. My beef is not that people do that. Just be honest about it. Right. Like if John MacArthur said, listen, I'm a Calvinist. Here's why I think I'm a Calvinist. I'm pretty confident, but I understand in the Christian tradition, many people do not hold this view of predestination. And I get it. But instead, it's either you're this or you're not a Christian, right? That's the problem. There's no, there's not a lot of honesty in those spaces. Like, just be honest. I'm not saying you can't make the case for Calvinism if you read the Bible through a certain lens. You can make it. I think it's a bad argument. But at least pretend or act like you know you, you're you're you can acknowledge the massive, I mean, millennia long tradition that is church culture and history that would not see things the same way. And by the way, we're faithful to Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, that's like a conversation that Emily and I have had several times. It's like, I think for the other side, it's like, it's not even like a, I'm going to be faithful to the conversation and give the benefit of the doubt or say like, I might be wrong, which is, I try to lead with that posture. Like, hey, I could be wrong. This is the way I read this, but I might be wrong. But I think it like what is, is really, really hard for people is to go into that space. We're just like that you have to have a lower level of self pride because like to you're surrendering your I'm right. And we're in such an interesting time now where it's like, we really want to be right about everything. Right. And so, and I see it fleshed out like both of my brothers are not hyper-religious and I would say not really religious at all because they were just like, I'm not going to go to a bunch of a-holes that tell me if I don't believe X, Y, and Z thing I'm wrong. And so to be able to like create that space for someone else to maybe believe a different thing, even if it's like, what you would call a secondary issue. You just watch like Christians and church leaders squirm because they're surrendering certainty in that. And it's, I think a really, really interesting dynamic because I think that's one of the best parts about our faith is like that we can have a little bit more diversity of people around us that are pushing us and asking us questions. That's one of the reasons Emily and I are great friends is like, we don't line up on everything. We have some pretty heated arguments sometimes, but it's because we're like walking faith together and the, there's no contract you sign or should some churches make you, but there should be no contract <laughs> right. you sign that says you have to believe all these things to have a seat at the table. Right. I mean, that's kind of arrogant, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, isn't the world bigger than white people? 
Isn't the world bigger than white-centered evangelicalism? You need the other perspectives to fill out how the world and how the Christian tradition functions. I mean, when, yeah. when you don't, when you don't, and I, I regret that I wasn't exposed to James Cone at all yeah. in my evangelical tradition. That's he's the father of Black Liberation theology. Mm-hmm. I read the Cross and the Lynching Tree like a couple months ago. Blew my mind. Like, oh my God, I've never thought about the connection between black lynched bodies and the crucified Jesus and like how the black community finds solace in what happened to Jesus as they're seeing this unjustness of lynching at the hands of white Christians, by the way, happen. I've never had to think about that before, but my God, like this is, this is a humbling thing to wrestle with and I have to sit at the table and learn. Right. But I found that the spaces we're in don't like giving up that kind of power or control and they've done a great job of calling it theology when really it's just white-centered theology. You know, it, it, it's Reformed theology. That, that's what it is, but they call it theology. Well, okay, I mean, it's one way of looking at things for sure, but there are other views that are necessary and helpful that, that kind of fill out some of the stuff that it's important to at least be exposed to. I'm not saying you have yeah. to become, you know, a black, liberna- a black liberation subscriber all the way through and through, but certainly sit with it, wrestle with it, let it sit with you, let it, let, let it change something about you, and then move on to the next thing, you know? Yeah. And, I, and I think that, like, oh, go ahead. like when, um, but what the problem is, is the church often villainizes any other perspective. And so if you even begin to like dabble in that, then of course you won't feel at home. Again, like I, I said this before, but it's like, the church is like, well, I don't know why everyone's leaving. <laughs> but it's like, you haven't made space for any other opinion. Like, I don't think I've shared this story on this podcast, but when I was pretty young, I think I was like 12, mm. I got the book Love Wins by Rob mm. Bell. Classic. Um, but I, I, I don't remember how I got it. I think I asked for the wrong book or something, but I was reading it and I was telling someone at <laughs> my church, I was like, I'm reading this book and it's actually really interesting and really helpful. And I've never thought about heaven and hell this way. And she looked at me and she was like, Emily, you have to be so careful. Like that man is a heretic. And I was like, I had no idea. I, I hope this is okay. I, I cut up the book and threw it away so that yeah. no, el- no one else would accidentally experience yeah. The, the horrible <laughs> theology. It, it was oh, in my trash can ripped up. Such a good fundamentalist. <laughs> oh, Tim, I was the best fundamentalist. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. When you said you bought the book, actually, my first instinct was that you bought it just to burn it. Uh, that's funny well so tim one of the things i really appreciate about your platform and voice is actually that you talk about not just like evangelicalism because i think that's a huge thing to talk about but you do talk about how whiteness really informs it and i think that's a like a thing that i think i could definitely do a better um job like speaking into but i think that's one of the things i really appreciate because oftentimes at least in some of these circles it's like well people of color have to speak up about it and i think that's like a way for white people to kind of like skirt the blame and be like well if they're not talking about it i'm not gonna have to talk about it but i love that you're kind of leading the charge in this because there are a lot of sins of the past that have been perpetrated by primarily white evangelical church and i think to go back to even what we said at the beginning like i love that you're attempting to reclaim this space as one that is wildly more inclusive than it was ever told it could be and so i just wonder like as you've seen the work really progress from day one you start the instagram or tiktok or web whichever one you started first to now where you're like where have you seen other people move because it sounds like you do a really good job engaging with your audience through dms and whatnot like have you seen people really understand 
kind of the racial reckoning of kind of the problematic nature of white evangelical church outside of just kind of what you're sharing? Like, are you hearing other people do that as well? Yeah, well, I definitely want to be careful because I'm, I'm definitely one of the newer voices to the conversation. And, you know, I'm still... I'm a big believer of of letting the black community lead and then asking how I can how we can ally with them. Right. Sure. Like yeah. I wrestled in the beginning a lot. I'm like, should I talk about this? Should I not? Is I don't want to like become like a white savior kind of thing. But also yeah. I feel like I was complicit in some of this stuff. So I want to repent and like say I'm sorry in my own way. And one of my friends, Janice, she runs the account God has not given. She's great. Like she's just hilarious. And um, she was part of uh, Hillsong in New York for a long time. She's um, you know, a black woman. And she told me when we were talking privately, she's like, listen, like we, I like seeing white men owning it and just, and like, and, and calling out their own. Like, it's really helpful. And she pretty much encouraged me. She was like, listen, you can't control what privilege you have, but you, you can control what you do with it. You know, I was like, yeah, you're right. Like, I can't control, yeah. none of us can, none of us can control how we were born, where we were born, what we look like, none of that. Right. But we can control what we do with any of that privilege that comes along with that in, in, in a cultural moment. So, you know, my thing is just, I'm just trying to be um, wise in using my privilege to draw attention to realities that a lot of us weren't aware of, including myself until maybe a year or two ago, right? I didn't know the history of Jerry Falwell and the white evangelical church and, and, and desegregation and, and school and private schooling. I, I didn't know any of that. I didn't realize that Bob Jones overturned their interracial dating ban in 2001. <laughs> you know, like I didn't know that. So I feel like as we've been, I, because I had the privilege of doing this work full time now, thanks to our donors who support the, me being able to do this, I've been able to spend more time kind of just learning and studying and reading. And like what I'm finding is is terrible, but also it's maddened because I've been in these spaces and no one ever told me like like the waters that I've been swimming in. Right now, mm. I'm not saying that every part of white evangelicalism is bad, but they're not. They're either aware and won't and won't bring attention to their own. Mis, uh, to their own misdeeds and their own racism, or they're just ignorant and, and think that everything is great and that and that they're that they're God's greatest gift to mankind. Like without them, the gospel never happens. I mean, that that's kind of the mentality, right? If Hillsong doesn't exist, how will the gospel go forth? So I feel like there's an obligation for people like myself and others who are kind of in this like platform position to bring attention to our own history. So I see a lot of this work as my own repentance, my way of saying I am so sorry for being either directly complicit or ignorantly complicit in this. And I want to turn and go the other way. And the way I do that is by bringing attention to this and letting people know what's going on underneath the surface here. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's wonderful. And I like similar type note. I, there was a, after George Floyd's death, I hosted a podcast that was on racism and the gospel. And my knee jerk reaction was to just have like only people of color on it. And one of my good friends who was on it, was like we don't need to learn from the white people in the room but we need you to have some level of participation in the conversation otherwise it's just a conversation of the marginalized right so there has to be some level of i love you saying like repentance but there has to be a level of activity otherwise like i think and this is where i see a lot of white leaders do this like they'll kind of say like well this is for that person or that group we do it with the lgbtq community as well like this is for them to talk about but there has to be a level of yeah repentance and also leveraging of your privilege and platform to try to speak against and fight against injustice. Right. So that's, that's why right. I love what you're doing. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so I want to be uh, privy of our time. So we're getting like close to, I think probably landing the plane, but I think Emily, do you like have any kind of like final, like, Hey, here's a question that's on my mind or like something that like 
we've got Tim here. We've got him for a little bit longer. Like, what's on your heart? What's on your mind? What do you got for him? Okay, this is what's on my mind. Um, at the beginning, Tim, you talked about one of the big reasons that you started this was because of pastors and church and masks and ignoring mm. the mask mandate and things yeah, like that. for sure. I... And maybe the answer is it would be exactly the same, but I want to know, like, what do you think your faith would look like today if COVID didn't happen? Hmm, that's a great question. Hmm. You know, it is tough to answer. Um, I mean, the new evangelicals probably wouldn't exist, most likely, because of just how the spark came from Sean Foy doing what he did during COVID. Um. You know, I'm a type six on the Enneagram, so I'm a loyalist. So I will stay in places that maybe I don't support ideologically for the sake of the friendships there. So I would I would be at that church as long as they would have me um, until they, they, they kick me out, <laughs> essentially. Right. Mm-hmm. So maybe that would I'd still be there, you know, maybe because I, I wouldn't have this larger platform where I can say what I'm thinking about. I don't I don't really know. Honestly, I, I don't know what my faith would look like. My yeah, it's really. It is. It's a great question that I have never been never been asked before that I haven't thought about. So we're kind of like in the moment with you processing it. I just don't. I don't really know. Um, I think I would most likely still be at that church, but I think a lot of my theology would just be like have a lot of questions, and and I would either be in a place where it's like either I just go head first and find these answers, or I ignore it, get a a, a real job, and then just you know we have two kids and just worry about, about making money, attending church, and kind of becoming one more of those. You know, just Sunday morning volunteer Christians just doing my thing. So it's one of those two options, frankly. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, well, we've talked I, about that before, right? Like the idea that COVID was a catalyst. I mean, COVID was awful and and is awful in so many ways. Yeah. But like Emily, for you, there was some catalytic stuff that happened, right? Yeah. I mean, honestly, I think I might still be a Presbyterian if there wasn't COVID. Right. Like it's, it's hard to break the status quo. You're in this rhythm. You have these people, you're just doing your thing. How do you break that and go where, go nowhere? Like, what is that? Why would you change what's comfortable? That that's a human thing. I mean, that that's a lot of us, you know? So I don't think I would have broken it. Plus I love what I was doing at that church. Like I love mm-hmm. drumming. We built this really beautiful multi-worship, uh, multi-church worship night that we were doing every eight weeks that really got well known in our, in our immediate circles. I love the, the, the production. I love doing all of that. So it's not like I hated being there. I, I loved it. And I, I love the people. So I think I could have justified to myself why I should stay and just kind of, you know, suck it up and move on. Yeah. I, yeah. Like, I think I would still be where I was, but be miserable because these questions would have still come up. But right, I think like COVID said, well, now there is no status quo. This is the time. And I think that's why it deconstruction kind of feels like a movement is because, and it, it's pretty interesting that these like big movements often happen after like some big disease or something yeah. like the reformation happened after the plague i think mm. it's like different like it's pretty interesting that something that completely upends everything and is so so horrible and i'm not saying like woohoo i'm so glad but like right right it i just think it's really interesting that something like that because it flipped everything upside down gave us the space to flip our faith and even how we live that out upside down uh, um yeah no i 
I totally agree with you. A hundred percent. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm an eight on the Enneagram. And so I, <laughs> you're I, a challenger, huh? I, I like, so I think that is interesting though. Cause it's like, for me, I like to flip things up and mess with things and see like <laughs> what's going on and uh, almost to my detriment. And my wife is a six on the Enneagram. And so she does not enjoy it as much as I do. <laughs> what a combo. Uh, <laughs> what a combo. <laughs> but I think it is interesting, like to think about that, like what COVID did and it did it for me as well. Like it, gave me like it was a shock right like you stopped you looked around and you said what matters why why am i in this rhythm and you were able to ask different questions i think like that's one thing i hope comes out of the new kind of movement of where faith is going is more people now because people i think feel less obligated to go to church maybe or do things on the same kind of rhythm that they were doing it and so to take those times to evaluate and ask and challenge and redevelop like because that's what i see the best of deconstruction or reconstruction or untangling whatever words you want to use like it's really just a chance to say like i'm going to slow down and start to like examine parts of this for myself because that's not been the rhythm of the church for decades it's going to come right. in sit down i'm going to tell you what to believe and now through like well i want to do some exploration for myself and see where i come out the other side right and that's why i call deconstruction an explosion because people really are going in different directions you know some people are taking mm-hmm. the exit ramp to and they're like i'm out sure, like yeah. i'm i'm agnostic atheist i'm out uh and many are like hey i'm i'm not sure yet many are like i I might be out i don't know so people are heading in different directions but i think for our purposes for our like our community you know we're still very much centered on jesus and just trying to figure out what that really means as this i guess new evangelical type but just kind of rethinking like okay we, we, we were taught this about the christian faith uh, what do we do with that? Because <laughs> there's a lot of garbage attached to it. And like, how do we find new paths forward? Um, not make them. They're already there for sure. And how do we explore them and be introduced to them and just think about better, more ethical ways of following Jesus and what that means for us here and now? Awesome. Um, well, Tim, so do you want to like maybe give you just an opportunity? Like, uh, do you ever watch Hot Ones with Sean Evans? Uh, nope. the hot sauce. Well, so he ends his show by giving his guests the opportunity to share what's going on in their life. But would you just like, like let people know like what you're doing or how they can follow you and get connected? Cause I think again, just on a personal note, I think your content's great and what you're doing in the conversation you're having, but maybe people have never interacted with you before. And so kind of what do you got going on? How can they either support or get involved or follow or any of that kind of stuff? Sure. Yeah, it is. It's wild to even say this because we are doing a lot now that I, as I talk about it, but so you can engage with us anywhere on social media. We're on TikTok, on Instagram, you know, et cetera. Instagram's like our main front door. That's where I'm most active in DMs and stuff like that. A lot of our content goes through there. We have, we have a really great podcast um, that is 84 episodes in now with just some amazing, if you're like asking questions about like better ways forward, we just had some amazing guests like Adam Clark, Trip Fuller. We even had Russell Moore on the show before. So there's some great discussions. Kristen Dumay just talking about what it means to be a Christian. Also, we're very passionate about resisting Christian nationalism. So we do a lot. We do a lot of work kind of exposing what's happening there. So you can find us on podcasts, and we are completely uh, donor based. We we work off of uh, off of donations to make it all happen. We don't charge anything for our work. Uh, we just trust the community to pitch in every month, and they do. And that's how we're able to sustain what what the the level of content and community engagement that we have because of the generosity of donors so that's that's kind of us in a nutshell that's awesome well i really appreciate you joining us uh this has been a fun conversation uh and emily uh why don't you send us out all right actually tim do you want to send us out are we gonna pray (laughs) 
Yeah, everyone just bow our heads. And, no. <laughs> if you want to know where you're going to go when you die, just bow your head and close your eyes. <laughs> you have one minute. This is the time to scurry your eyes. Um, <laughs> I see that hand. I see that hand. I see that hand. <laughs> uh, the worship leader at our church actually talks about how that she went to like a passion conference or something. And she's like, I accidentally got saved because I raised my hand and they brought me a Bible and like prayed a prayer with me. When she brings that Bible, she's like, yeah, this is when I accidentally got saved. <laughs> the pad and A starts playing, the little drone in the background, you know? Anyway. Uh, you want me well, to send you out? We, well, we always end the podcast with um, telling our audience to embrace the journey. So yes, you, you mind saying that? Sure. Embrace the journey. <laughs> but for real, embrace it. 